So far, okay, good deal, good deal. Uh, let's get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into class. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings you give us. We thank you for the freedom and the opportunity we have to come and worship you, to study your word, to learn more about you, to celebrate you, and then hopefully take what we learn and take it out to others so they can do the same. Lord, just ask you to bless us as we go through this class. Help us to, to continue to learn about your life and who you are and what purpose you have for us. That's in Christ. Let me pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue uh, the series in, in, in Jesus. And this one's I'm going to be honest with you, this one's going to go on for a while because we are going to look at Jesus' ministry in chronological order. So what I did the last couple of weeks is kind of give you an overview of who Jesus was, well, you know, the... How, how all the, the, the things that he was doing it pointed to a reason and a purpose. And so we're going to now kind of review and get into the details of all that. So one of the things I would recommend, I don't know, who in here has a chronological Bible? Okay, I would highly recommend, I, I like this one. Um, it's the Chronological Life Application Study Bible. I got the New Living Translation, but they make it in the New American Standard and... Um, I think a new King James as well, and an NIV. But um, you can get it for like $20-some dollars on Amazon, which is a, actually a really, really, really good price. Usually a lot of times these books go for, or the Bibles will go for, you know, 50, 60 bucks. But what's really neat about it is, one, <laughs> half of it's Bible and half of it's study information, um, and it goes into to, to some pretty good details. But the one thing I like about it, too, is you can actually go through the Gospels in chronological order, and so you can see you know, the, the things that connect together as Jesus was going through his ministry. And we're going to talk about this a little bit because not all, like, like John, for example, uh, is not written in a pure chronological order. There are some things that are, that are out of order, and he did it on purpose. And so as you go through the Gospels, you can, it takes all four of the Gospels and connects them together so you can see what happened in a chronological order. And, and, it, and it helps add to uh, the life and, and ministry of Jesus. So I'm going to start with three uh, Bible verses, two from the Old Testament and one from the New. And the first one's Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Nevertheless, the that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, I think is how you say that, will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future where Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the, the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, for those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you, as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery, and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior, and the uniforms bloodstained by war, will be burned. They will be fuel the fire for a child is born to us a son is given to us the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace his government and its peace will never end he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor david for all eternity the passion the passionate commitment of the lord of heaven's armies will make it happen now if you're reading that and you're and you're Jewish, and you're expecting G, you know this to be the 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 this is the the talking of the coming Messiah. How would you interpret that? 
king like David, but higher. Anyone else? Armies, right? And so we've talked about uh, the last couple of weeks how the the Jewish, and especially the 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 Jewish leaders, uh, religious leaders of the time, expected Jesus to come in form of a kingship and armies and stuff to come and overthrow the Roman Empire. And so you can kind of, from reading this, you can kind of see where they, they, get, they got some of that because it talks about, you know, his new government and his new, you know, his new leadership and coming in and throwing, which all these things happen, but they were more in a, they were in a spiritual format more than they were a physical, you know, or earthly kingdom. And so we're going to continue to look at that. If we look at Micah 5, verses 2 through 5, but you, Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world. And and he will be the source of peace when the Assyrians, Assyrians invade our land and break through our defenses. We will appoint seven rulers to watch over us, eight princes to lead us. Again, it, it goes through... I'm sorry, it didn't change. It, it goes through, again, talking about the, this Jesus that is coming. And again, it has more of a... When you read this, it has more of a earthly kingdom, more of a... A, a ruler who's going to come and overthrow in great power and, and do all this. So, so we see this happening. And so we kind of get an understanding of what we've studied in the last couple of weeks of why they, they've, they believed what they believe and why they didn't understand who Jesus was and, and why he was, his, was coming the way they, they said he was coming. So if we continue on, And look in John, verse 1, and this is not one to change. Dorothy, can I borrow your clicker, please? The clicker. It's not one to change for me. Don't want if we look in John 1, verses 1 through 5, this is where, you know, I, I like John's introduction here of, of Jesus because he kind of goes all the way back and then, and then comes forward. And so if we look at this, we see in John 1, in the beginning... The Word already existed, and, and, and most versions says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him. And so I want to I stop there and, and look at that. So I think a lot of times when we, we think about creation, we think about God sitting there, and it's like, oh, God spoke and this happened, and God spoke and this happened. But one of the things we see in 1 John is God created everything through the Son, through Jesus. And if you look further, and nothing was created except through him, the Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it so we we see 
the beginning of, of Christ, who he was, his proclamation, and, and he comes through and, and, and hits to the life of Christ, which we're going to look at. So one of the things that's interesting in the life and ministry of, of Jesus, if we look, there's actually 250 events in the life of Christ that's recorded in the New Testament. If you, if you go and section them all out and, and put them in order, uh, there's 250 different events that's recorded from his, his birth all the way to his death and resurrection and, and ascent into heaven. And so we're going to look through that, through the, and obviously these are all recorded in the four Gospels and then a little bit um, at the beginning of Acts. But if we, we, I want, the one thing I want to do first is look at the four Gospels and go through those so we can get an idea of who each writer of the Gospels were who their intended, intended audience was, and the purpose kind of for, for, for writing the book. Because the one thing that's interesting is all four authors had very different writing styles. Their, their, um, their audiences were different, and the purpose a lot of times of their book that they were writing or the letter that they were writing was different as well. So the first one, obviously, is Matthew, also known as Levi. He was a former tax collector, and he was one of the twelve. And his audience, for the most part, he, he was writing his, his letter to Jews. That's who his letter was, was going to. This is the second, if you really look at the timeline of um, when the books were written, this would have been the second gospel that was written. And it presents Jesus as a fulfillment, what a lot of scholars will say is the fulfillment of an, early, of an earlier story. And we talked about that in the last couple of weeks. It's, it's, it was talking about Jesus as a fulfillment of what, was, what had happened and what was to come. And so we saw as, as we go through that. One of the things that um, you'll see in, in the, the book here, and he starts it out, and I, I'm going to butcher this, but it's, it's Biblos Genesis, I think is how you say it, but, but basically the book of Genesis is how he actually starts. And, it's, and if you actually look at the entire Greek, it's the book of Genesis or the beginning of Jesus Christ. And so he actually starts it similar to Genesis, or, 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 or you know, how we see in Genesis, of you had a new creation, and it's a, it's a parallel of, you know, when he starts his book that way, of a new creation again, looking at Jesus as he came. And so we see that Matthew connected Jesus to the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even cast him as a new and better Moses. We talked about that, that last week. It is the story of Israel in exile and slavery, overseen by a foreign pagan power. This is Roman now instead of Egypt awaiting a Savior to come and take them to the promised land yet again. And again, we, we kind of covered that uh, a little bit last week. Now Mark. Mark would have been written first. It was written somewhere between 40 to 60 A.D. I think some scholars lean more towards like 45-ish A.D. Um, Mark was not one of the 12. Mark, also known as John Mark, we see that he accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. His audience was the two Christians in Rome. He was writing to uh, the Christians in Rome. What's interesting, it, is for, it was the first one written, like we talked about, but all, 31 verses, uh, all but 31 verses of Mark are actually quoted in other Gospels. So if you compare the other Gospels, then that's that one, that's one, that's one way we know it was written first, but two, it's interesting how they, that you, you look at the, the way it was written and, and different writers, and they, they still quote and talk about the same things. It's heavily linked to Isaiah. Uh, every single chapter in Mark cites some verse or verses from Isaiah. 
So there's an interesting uh, parallel there. It also records more miracles than any other gospel as well. So Mark does. All right, so Luke. This would have been the third gospel written around A.D. 60. Luke was a doctor or physician, um, depending on the way you want to look at it. He was a Gentile or Greek Christian. He is the only known uh, Gentile writer of the New Testament. As far as we know, uh, there's no other uh, Gentile writers uh, that wrote in the New Testament. He was a close friend and companion of Paul. Uh, and here's another interesting thing. I think I've mentioned this before. Most scholars actually believe that Luke and Acts were written at the exact same time. Uh, and it would have been one letter, but because, you know, we, we talked about this before, because of the way that, that everything was written in scrolls, there wouldn't have been enough room to write an entire scroll of all of Luke and all of Acts together. And so mo, mo, a lot of scholars believe that a lot of those, that those two were written almost around the same time, would have been almost one continuous letter, but it was split, obviously, because of the way that things were written in that time. The audience was uh, Theophilus and other Gentiles. Um, what's, one thing that's interesting about Luke, he gives a prominent place to women in his writings, which was very uncommon for that time. It's the most comprehensive of the Gospels. Um, and obviously through the writing, if you, if you look at the writing and the way he wrote, uh, you can tell that he was very educated. And it, uh, um, Luke parallels a lot with the life of David in reference, and, and you'll see that, you see that a lot in Luke as well. And then finally, we have John. Uh, John is a lot of times referred to as the other gospel because if you actually go through and read them all, John's writing was very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. There's a lot of similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke in, in their writings. When you, but when you come to John, John's writing was, was a lot different, and you, and you see that. Sorry, I'm going to change that. Uh, he, he uses a lot of um, different words and images and ideas and, and stories. Um, it was the last gospel written. Most scholars believe it was around 90, 90-ish A.D. And um, some, some inter interesting things uh, that we have here. John consistently... Gives more references to um, what we would call uh, chronological areas, um, physical areas that we that we see. Um, references to geography and topography and stuff like that. And and a lot of people believe the reason for that one it was ninety or ninety A.D. So it was about sixty years or so after. Um, after Christ's uh, re resurrection and ascension and end of his ministry. And also it helps, it just helps prove, you know, when you write things in there and you can show that this was here and this is the way this was, it shows a lot more evidence in, in the way that things, uh, when you write about something. If I want to write about Lake Park and I write about buildings that were here and I write about different areas that were here, it helps, you know, cement the, the fact of, of what I wrote. Was someone going to say something? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, one of the things I think about is like uh, Dad is a big fan of the Foxfire books. And if you, if you go through and read a lot of their books, it talks a lot about the areas and, and the things they did and, and, and the landscape and the people. And it gives more, more proof to what, we're talking, to what they're talking and writing about so you can see that those type of things are true. All right, so getting back to 
um, the life and ministry of Jesus here. Actually, I had one more thing I wanted to do on this one. I'm sorry. Um, over 90% of John is unique to his gospel. So that, that's an interesting thing. So I think that's because there's a big time difference between the two. But um, there's been a lot of modern archaeological discoveries uh, through the book of John. And there, there's five, got five here, or I think five or four, five here. The five uh, portices of the, the pool of uh, Bethesda by the Sheep Gate, the pool of Siloam, Jacob's well at Sychar, the pavement where Pilate pronounced ju judgment on Jesus, and Solomon's porch. So those five things have actually that, Ju that John talks about in his Gospels have actually been discovered in Jerusalem as they've dug and, and, and do archaeological digs. They've actually found these things that John talks about. All right, so the life of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus. So we've kind of gone through so far his birth, and I, and I thought about sitting down and going through his birth and, and everything that was there, but really I, I think we know the birth story. For the most part, I think everyone <laughs> who's in there, I mean, a lot of non-Christians know the, the birth story of Jesus Christ. I was going to go into it a little bit deeper because the way that it's presented in, like, stories and things like that is actually very different than what his birth would have actually been like. But I, I don't think that really is relevant to what we're, we're trying to look at here. But but one of the things to be aware of is, is you know, the, the idea that, you know, Jesus was they went to this little town of Bethlehem and they couldn't find anywhere to stay and all the innkeepers were mean to them and kicked them all out. And so they had to go then go and stay in this uh, stable that was, you know, nice, had hay, you know, and, and they put him in this nice little cloth and, you know, all this other stuff. That, that wouldn't happen. And, and most, most scholars believe that they actually didn't go from end to end to end and people kick them out. It was, it was just so crowded and so busy. That's the only option they had. And two, they, wouldn't have, they weren't ultra wealthy. And so a lot of times they, they couldn't afford these things. And some other scholars also believe that, you know, we see this stable that was, that was done. More than likely it would have been a cave. Um, many times that they would use caves and, and, arid, and areas dug into the rock to, uh, for their stables and stuff like that. And it wouldn't have been all these little sheep and, and, and you know, baby lambs and, and all this stuff. It would have been more than likely, uh, in that time, mainly cattle. I'm not, it's not cattle, camels. And I don't, I don't, I'm not so sure. I went to dig into this a little bit. I'm not sure if horses were prominent back then, but, but it would have definitely been camels and donkeys for the most part. And, and it would have been nasty, and it would have been filthy. And it, you, you basically, she gave birth in, if anyone's ever um, worked stables it, it, and, or worked cattle or anything like that, it's, it's not pretty. It smells really bad. And they would have put him in a food trough. And if anyone's ever used a food trough or slop hogs or, or even fed cattle or anything like that, it, even horses, it's not pretty, it's not clean. And so, and it wouldn't have been these white linens and, and all that stuff. It would, have been a, it would have been a messy environment that you wouldn't have wanted to give birth in. And so you have his birth, and then you have the, the preparation of Jesus. You see them, we talked about this last week, they, go, they have to go into exile into Exodus. They come out of, I'm sorry, exile into Egypt. Um, they, they come up out of there. Then you see a little bit of his childhood. Um, you, you see that, you know, Mary, you really cherished his childhood. I think Mary knew a lot of what was going to happen. And so as, as raising a child and knowing that, you know, this is the son of God and, and that, you know, you, you, 
can probably foreshadow and see a little bit of what's coming. She cherished, you know, it talks about that whenever um, he was in the temple. She cherished the things that went on. So we had that. He comes out. He starts his ministry. We talked about that last week where he went into, um, was baptized by John the Baptist and then went into uh, the desert for 40 days to be tempted. And again, this was all one to parallel Exodus and, and the, the birth of Israel, but it was also to prepare Jesus. You know, he, the reason he was gone, the reason he was, went into the desert and was tempted for 40 days was because he was, this was preparing him for his ministry, all right? It was, it was getting him ready for what he was about to go through, and what we can tell from John that, you know, this is going to be three years of preparing his disciples and having people attack him and come after him, which then eventually would lead to his death. So he was, he was being prepared for that. So as he comes out of this, we see then in John, Jesus' first followers. Question, who was Jesus' first disciple? Huh? I don't remember if I put it on here. I may not have. No, I didn't. I just put the Bible verse up. So technically, the way it looks, it looks like Andrew was the, the first follower, and then he went and, and grabbed some other people. And so we're going to look at that real quick. John 1, verses 35 through 51. And, and I know these are long, lengthy, but I, I want to get into these because I, this, as you read into and dig into the Scripture, which we're supposed to do, you, you get more and see more of Jesus' personality and, and, and tension as, as you go through this. So... The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. And, and here's an interesting thing. Most scholars, or a lot of scholars, believe that the two disciples that were standing with John were Andrew and then John, who actually wrote the book. There's no hard evidence proof of that, but there's a lot of scholars who do believe that. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. <laughs> Can you imagine... Just standing there, and someone saying, "Hey, look! There goes the Lamb of God." All right, let's go. Yeah, <laughs> and I know there's a little bit more to it than that. I know they had, you know, John, you know, his two disciples. He had been preparing them for the coming of the Lamb. So it wasn't just a, "Oh, well, there's Jesus," and they just they knew he. John had been preparing and talking about, "Hey, look, the Messiah's coming." John saw the Messiah and said, "Hey, there he is," you know. And so they stopped following John and and started following Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following, and he said, what do you want? And, and this is, I, I like Jesus, if you look at Jesus' method, Jesus actually asked more questions in the Gospels than he did answer them. In fact, if you actually go back and look, most of the time, whenever the, there's very few times where he actually just answered directly a question. One was the, the greatest commandment, and I forget there's a couple others in there. But usually when someone would ask Jesus a question, he would counter with a question. And so it's, it's interesting to watch Jesus and how he interacts uh, with people. But, you know, they're, so they're following. He says, what do you want? And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was, upon the, it was about the fourth, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Now we see Andrew... Simon Peter's brother was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. 
Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. <coughs> then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So uh, this is an interesting exchange, too. And we know why, we, we see why Jesus did this later on. But so Andrew has started, you know, he's like, Okay, I'm following Jesus. Now let me go get my brother because he needs to follow him as too. So you bring your brother, and Jesus looks intently at him. I, I'd like to see what that exchange was. What did, I mean, did he stare him down, or did he, you know, did he just, you know, what did he do? But then he changes his name on the spot. He, you know, he said, let me bring my brother. I'm going to change your name. And so we, we understand why. Why did Jesus change his name to Peter? What does Peter mean? Rock, right? And, and we see later on, Peter was pretty passionate about things. And we also see where Jesus builds the church on Peter's confession of who he was. And so it's, it's foreshadowing here of, of what's going to happen and the re, one of the reasons why Jesus... Changed. Go ahead, Dad. It's, it seems to. It seems to. It, and the chronological, the way they've put this in chronological order is this happened before Jesus went and, and got the other disciples. No, no. He would have he been known in that area because he would have already, you know, because, you know, you had the first miracle, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, is Jesus turning water into wine. And so then it, it's, it's shortly after that that um, he gets the, the rest of the, the disciples. There's, in the chronological study, um, and we're going to look at this uh, not next week but the, the week after, um, it looks like he um, met with Zacchaeus and uh, cleared the temple and uh, met the woman at the well before he even got those four. So if you, if you look at it in, in a chronological order, so uh, we'll, we'll look at that. We're going to look at that uh, in two weeks. So he renames him Peter. So then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida and Andrew and Peter's hometown. Then Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And so here we get into what we talked about a little bit last week. Nazareth, ex exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that's a comment of, you know, we talked about that that, that area was not a highly reputable area. It was, you know, in our day and age, we would, we would call it the other, the other side of the tracks. But Philip goes and says, hey, come see for yourself then. You know, I understand, but come see for yourself. We, we know about Nazareth, but come see. As they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. I don't, I don't know why he said that to him, unless it was true. So there must have been something that was, that was uh, really not, I don't know what word to use, but that, that made Nathaniel stand out and for Jesus to comment on it. And so Nathaniel asked, how do you know about me? And Jesus said, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then, then uh, Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. I, I, this is a, 
interesting chain of events here because I don't I don't quite understand it. It's you know I walk up to someone and they say, well here comes a true you know son of Israel, and I'm like, oh well, how do you know that? And he's like, well because I saw you standing under a tree. I don't understand the exchange there, but for some reason this made sense to them, and so he he started following. I, I agree with that. I, I think that, and I think the way he talked to people too helped with that, and, and, and called people out with stuff he. You know, this was a complete stranger to him, and he's and he's complimenting him. So um, Jesus asked him, "Do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree?" And, and so he goes, "Well, just because I saw you, you know, doesn't mean." He said, "You will see greater things than this." He said, "I tell you the truth." You will see all heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man and the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. So this is Jesus' start to his ministry and, and, and kind of his, his first disciples that or his first followers that start following him and his group of people. And this is the, the transition from John, you know, John the Baptist paving the way from, from and his followers to now the transition to it's time, it's Jesus' time and, and to start doing his followers. So it goes from there, and then it transitions to the first miracle, which is turning water into wine. And I'm going to dive a little deep into this one because, and as you can see on the outline um, that, we, that we see there, a lot of people will, will tend to just kind of say, oh, well, this was Jesus' first miracle, this was him proving who he was, that he was the Messiah, and that he had special powers. But if we actually dive into this and, and go deeper into it, it, it's so much more than that. And it really kicks Jesus' ministry off with a proving who and showing who he is by, again, going into and, 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 and fulfilling a lot of things, but also representing himself as the new, the new wine, the new the, the Messiah, the new living water. And we're going we're gonna to look at all that. So in John 2, it continues on. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine, the wine supply ran out during the festivity, so Jesus' mother told him, Would they have no more wine? Dear woman, that's not, our, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But now you have kept the best until now. The miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. All the wedding, um, after the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days and his mother, with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. So this is the first 
time that, that, like the Bible talks about, Jesus showing the glory of who he was. And what's interesting about this story that, that we see here, and, and I'll go back to the beginning. One, weddings back then were not like weddings we have today. You know, for the most part, we have a wedding today, and it usually, typically, it may be a day-long event, but for the most part, you know, for the guests and everyone, it's maybe five or six hours. You know, you have the wedding, and you have the, the reception afterwards, and then you send the, the bride and groom off uh, to their honey room. Back in, the, back in Jesus' time, a wedding was about five to seven days. It, it was a celebration for a long time, and it involved, and it were usually involved, the, the entire village. So if someone was getting married, then the entire village celebrated in this. So if you had a little town, I, I tried to do some research and try to find out how large this town was, and no one really knows. Um, there's a lot of estimates, but, but, I mean, even if it was a town of 500 people, I mean, that's a lot that you have to prepare for and, and create. So the wine in that back in that day was a big part of the celebration. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is Jesus, you could tell, I, I, don't, I, want, I want to be careful how I word this, but it seems like Jesus didn't want to do this. It, the, the, the conversation that he has with his mother, you know, he, he, he's basically like this, them being out of wine is not our problem, right? But his mother looks and says, just do what he tells you to do. And so it's like even the son of God had to listen to his mom. And, and so if your mom tells you to do something, you're going to do it. And so he does it, but, but he does it, and I'm not going to say, well, he didn't want to. I, I don't know, you know, we don't get the context. But in reading that, it, it seemed like he wasn't ready to start this part of his ministry yet. But he went ahead and did it anyways and used it as an opportunity to show who he was and the, and the power that he had. So the first thing... Yeah, or, or, or healing a bunch of people. I mean, really, the only people who, who really knew what happened was the guys that went and got the water for the wine and, and took it to the master or the, 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 um, the headmaster and then the, the disciples and the people that were around him at the time, his, you know, his inner group. So not, not, I don't know how that eventually blew out or, or you know, how the word was spread about that, but the only people, yeah. Yeah, they they went out, but uh, but a lot of his miracles were he were were healing people in front of people or you know for people. So so even then he still kind of hit it a little bit. But again, the, the word got out about it. Um, the first thing that that's interesting here is he tells them to to fill the Jewish ceremonial washing um, jugs. Now this was used for purification. For the most, it was a ceremony of clean cleansing and cleaning. Um, you know, Dad's talked about a lot that. You know, the, the, the Pharisees and the rulers had made all these crazy, ridiculous rules where you had to wash and you had to wash a certain way and, and do all these, these things. So that's what this was. So th these jars represented the old law. And so Jesus tells them uh, to fill them up. And we see that they, they held about um, uh, up to 30 gallons apiece. There were six of them. So it would have been anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water. So you got a one one. They didn't just have a faucet they could turn on. They had to make trips and go get that water and bring it back. And so they would have had to have done, I don't know how long it would have took them to get 180 gallons of water. 
to fill these jars up, but it would have taken them a little while. So Jesus is showing, one, his power over the old law when, it, when, he's, when he's telling them to fill those jars up. We're also looking at him being and his sacrifice being the new purification, right? And him being the living water. And he turns that water into wine. What does wine represent for us today? Or the, the fruit of the vine, wine, represent for us today? His blood, right? And so, and then we see, as we go a little bit further into the story, this is a better and new wine or blood. So God, Jesus is, so there's all kinds of parallels here to that Jesus creates in this. You know, the, the representing of, of being better than, or, or, or fulfilling the old law, turning that water into wine, which represents the blood that Jesus is going to shed for us. So a new purification. You know, that water was used for purification. We see a new purification through Jesus' blood. So it wasn't just this, okay, I'm going to perform a miracle to kind of show everyone who I am type thing. It, it had... See if this kind. There we go. I, I think that was one of. I mean, this is again just a, uh, my opinion on it and, and reading at it. I think that's part of why um, Mary wanted Jesus to do something about it as well. One, from what they can tell, this this town was really close to Nazareth, probably within about two or three miles. Um, and they wouldn't have been there unless they knew. I, I'm assuming had some relationship or knowing the 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 bride or the groom, one of the two, and so. I think that was some of the reason because this it was very embarrassing in that day and age to 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 do that. So that allowed that to continue on. Now, one thing I'm going to talk about real quick, and and this might be a little controversial, but but I am going to talk about this because there's a lot of misnomers about this, and and I, and I want to talk to it because I, I always want to be biblical when I talk about things. And when I see a lot of things. So you see a lot of things out there, or a lot of, especially lately, and I don't know why, of um, things around alcohol. And I'm going to talk about the wine and, and alcohol 
in this day. I did a lot of research on this to try to make sure I could be as biblically and historically accurate. There's a lot of people who will say that this, this wine that Jesus made was non-alcoholic wine. That's simply not true. If you, if you look at the, the way that wine was done back then, they would take, and this is why the, the, one of the, the master talks, or one of the guests talks about this is, you know, he talks about why did you bring the new wine after the, the older wine? The whatever wine Jesus made, it would have been parallel to some of the best wine that they would have had at that time. And so if you look at the way that, that winemaking was done, they would take at the beginning of, of a, the harvest, they would take the best crop, the best grapes they could find, and they would make a fine wine out of that wine. And they would crush it down, and then they would, they would store it and let it ferment just right. And that was considered the fine wine, the, the best wine. And, and what they would do with that is, is that was the more expensive wine. That was, you know, usually would have been held for your, your more wealthier people. And then what, as the, the, the other thing they would do is they would actually go back and re-crush the wine. They would use the, the grapes. They would use them over and over again. And then obviously as you got... You know, anyone who has a garden, as you get into a harvest, usually the further you get into a harvest, the worse, and the, I don't say the worse, but the, the less quality of grapes that you have and, or produce that you have. And go ahead. Huh? Oh, good. I'm going to get to that. So one of the things that they would do, so they would do that process and then, so they had the really good wine, which is a lot of what we would have today. Like when you know, we look at our wines today, we, you have your higher quality wines, and then you have your, your box wines, right? And, and so you have this, this, this different levels of wines that were made out of the different levels of crop. Now, as they got to the older wine, the wine that was, was not good quality, as good of quality, and was stored longer, that wine would start to ferment differently, and it would also start to get a a uh, vinegary taste to it so it wasn't very palatable it wasn't very good so what they would do with that wine which Mike was talking about they would cut it with water and so if you look at the the different levels the alcohol levels of wine the pure wine would have been somewhere between most scholars believe 15 to 20 percent alcohol and then your lower quality wine that they would cut would have about the same alcohol content as a, as a beer about four percent so for when this guy, when this master said, why did you wait for the new wine? Then it would have been the, the choice best wine that would have aged the best. You know, a lot of people say, well, it was grape juice. It, was the, it, would just, it would have been like they just crushed it and it was a grape juice type thing with little fermentation. Go ahead. There's definitely alcohol. And, and the reason I want to get is because there are a lot of, and it's not, there's a lot of people in the church kingdom who will say, well, Jesus didn't do this because he would have been encouraging people to sin and out drinking alcohol is evil. And, and I, I want to get around that a little bit because nowhere in the Bible does it say drinking alcohol is evil or that alcohol in itself is evil. Right? What, it, what does the Bible say is, is, is sinful and it, being drunk with wine, right? So, being a drunkard, right? So I want to I want to get into that because a lot of people say, well, well, Jesus never drank alcohol. Jesus never did this. You know, well, that's simply not true. 
right, and I don't want to cause someone's head to blow up by saying that. <laughs> right. Right, and that's what I want to get to because there are, I mean, I, I've gotten, I'll get to you, Steve. You know, I've gotten horrible feedback for, for saying things like, you know, there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. It's the, the overconsumption of alcohol. But it's the same thing with anything. There's nothing wrong with me eating food, but there is something wrong with me eating an overabundance of food to where I become a glutton. And, and so we, we've got to get into those and, and face those facts. And there's a lot of people who will teach that in this day and age, and the, and the wine that Jesus made was non-alcoholic, and he never drank alcohol, and, and I, that's, that's just not true. And so I want to make sure that we stay as biblical as we can when it comes to this kind of stuff. But again, I'm not, I'm not saying let's go out and start drinking all the time and, and, and doing that stuff, but I still want to be historically accurate because the wine in Jesus' time, almost all the time, was alcoholic. There's very few references in, in a, some of the, the ceremonies that they would do that they would, where they would crush the wine, and it would be the new wine that did not have very long time to ferment, and it was done that way on purpose for that ceremony. But when people were celebrating a wedding, they were getting hammered. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, right. And that's why, the, and, and so that's why they would do this. They would bring out in the beginning this one, this nice, it's a good tasting wine, very palatable, you know. And then as people got, you know hammered they would bring out the worst wine and say hey here you go it didn't taste very good but they were too drunk to care and so that was the the procedure then one other thing to come up he made a hundred at the most 180 gallons of wine does anyone know how many bottles of wine that is literally a ton it's literally a ton of wine it would have been 900 bottles of wine and so Anyway, I wanted to get into this a little bit because I want people to understand Jesus' his approach to things, the way he did things, and why he did them. And then talk about the truth around things like that. Because it really, not to say it frustrates me, but it irritates me because I think it's a hindrance to our message. When we have people out there saying, well, there was no alcohol, there was none of this, and everyone's like, you got a little bit of common sense even if you're not a Christian, and you can say, okay, yeah, that's not true. Steve, sorry, go ahead. Right. Right. No, any time it talks about Jesus drinking wine, it was typically sitting down when eating a meal or doing the, the, the Passover uh, celebration. Go ahead, Deb. For medicine, municipal persons. Yep. So I, I wanted to speak to that a little bit, yeah, because putting a uh, mixing water, and they, they they said they would usually cut uh, one fourth water. I think it was one fourth of water into um, into wine at that time to help, especially the bad tasting wine, but also like Dad said, to kill any bacteria or they didn't have sewage systems and purification systems. That's how they purified their water was with the alcohol in that. So 
All right, so next week, uh, we're going to get in, or no, I'm sorry, not, not next week. We're going to be out of town next week, um, I believe, and if Chris doesn't know this now, he, he will, um, is Chris is going to cover <laughs> the class for me. Um, but next week, we're going to look at the clearing of the temple, Nicodemus, and then the woman at the well. Thank you. <laughs>